Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. For today's podcast, we want to zero in on something you've probably heard about by now, vaccine passports. Having one means you'd have physical or digital proof that shows that you've been inoculated against COVID-19. And theoretically, a vaccine passport would allow you to get into a venue, a business, or even another country. Now, the Biden administration says it won't develop mandatory federal vaccine passports, but leaders and businesses nationwide and around the world, they're all split on the idea. Still, plans are taking shape in other countries, and New York recently debuted the nation's first vaccine passports through an app. So what exactly are vaccine passports? Why are they so controversial? And could they be key to returning to normal? On the line to explain how this would all work is Ian Schur, editor-at-large at CNET News. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for being here, Ian. Vaccine passports, right? They're the latest flashpoint in the pandemic. Can you tell us more about what exactly they are and why they're stirring all this debate? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of people, particularly in the travel industry, are really keen to try and figure out how do we make sure that people have been vaccinated and are safe. And this idea of a of a vaccine passport uh, started to come up. Now, it's not a new idea at all. In fact, when I went to Uganda, I had to prove that I had a yellow fever vaccine. And that meant I had to bring a little yellow book with me, and it had been signed. A number of other countries do this for meningitis and polio, particularly in Africa. And so this is not particularly new. But what I think is interesting is that there's a huge push to make it digital as well. And again, this is a lot of it is coming from the private sector. We're talking about companies like IBM are helping to create some of these ideas. And, uh, you know, the International Air Travel Association wants to figure something out. So it's going to be something that's going to be very interesting and and probably tied to technology, which is where also a lot of people's reactions to it are coming from, too. Yeah, well, whether it's digital or it ends up being physical proof of vaccination, what are the challenges of creating them, Ian? Well, the biggest problem is forgeries, right? And that is something that paper ones have always had a trouble with. Typically, though, it's been kind of a low enough risk that people don't really try to fix the problem, right? You know, if I'm going into a country that has herd immunity, you know, it's good that I've got my my proof of vaccine, but reality is that even if I lied, it's not going to probably hurt too many people. When it comes to something like this, that forgery is a huge issue. There are entire countries that are way behind their vaccine schedules or have barely gotten any to begin with. So coming in and bringing potentially a new strain could be devastating. So forgery is a huge issue. Another one also is standardization. One of the things we've learned, you know, I'm a tech reporter. I've been doing it for more than a decade. Uh, Standardization is something the tech industry always struggles with. They either want to create their own little ports or their own special apps or whatever else. And when we're talking about something this that is so an international issue, the question becomes, well, do I have to have like 50,000 apps on my phone to be able to travel to different places? And that would be super frustrating as well. New York has debuted the so-called Excelsior Pass, right? Tell us how that works and, and what are we learning from that rollout? 
Yeah, so the Excelsior Pass was actually designed along with IBM. And uh, what it is is that you are able to prove that you have a vaccine by downloading a QR code to your phone. And it's an interesting idea. It looks very much, if you go to CNET, we have a photo of it. It looks a lot like one of those passes that you download for your phone to get on the airplane. And that's no shock, right? A lot of these things are inspired by what we've been doing over the last decade with uh, digital passbooks right. and, you know, getting into either events or getting on an airplane or whatever else. So it's been an interesting thing to see happen. Of course, the questions are already popping up. Well, you know, who's getting this data? Where is it going? You know, the people who are vaccine hesitant, New York has entire communities of that. How do they deal with this and all sorts of other issues that pop up? And of course, as I mentioned, the Biden administration says it won't develop mandatory federal vaccine passports, but leaders and businesses across the country, they're split on the whole thing. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I I think it's really the business industry that's pushing a lot of this. You know, again, you've got IBM, you have the uh, International Air Travel Association, which represents 290 airlines worldwide. They are really pushing for this because obviously they don't want to have someone stick on their airplane. Clear, the registered travel program, which already does health stuff, is pushing a health pass on theirs. And you've got several other of them as well. So the, the business industry seems to be really pushing for this. On the other side of it, you have uh, you have governors and some politicians who are saying, well, wait a minute, and they're trying to kind of bring up issues around privacy and concerns like that. There is also a lot of pressure that's coming from the anti-vaccination crowd who are, are basically pushing this and saying, you know, this is a privacy issue and everything else, but they're also really trying to, they don't want to get vaccinated and they don't want to suddenly see themselves unable to live in modern world once things start getting back to normal. So we have, for example, Ron DeSantis of Florida. He has passed a bill uh, banning this, but the cruise industry is huge in Florida. So this is going to set up a really interesting battle just there alone. That's Ian Schur with CNET News. Let's turn now to Stephen Thrasher. He's an assistant professor of journalism at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism and the Daniel Renberg Chair of Social Justice and Reporting. He's also a columnist for Scientific American. Hi, Stephen. Welcome back to Reset. Thanks so much for having me. Now, in a recent column for Scientific American, you wrote about how global vaccine equity is much more important than vaccine passports. Can you expand on that? If we're sort of thinking of our ideals right now, and I think that this pandemic, this experience that all 7.5 billion earthlings have gone through at the same time, it's a really good opportunity not to just repeat the status quo, but to think about what could be possible going forward. And so as we idealize what's going to happen next, I think the fastest, most ethical thing we want to be doing is getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I think that's important if it means breaking the patent, if it means finding ways so that we can export drugs faster, but more logistically practical, making it so that countries in the global south can produce their own vaccines as quickly as possible. And this is a matter of uh, ethics, of caring for our fellow human beings, but it's also a matter of self-interest. We don't want this virus mutating any longer than it can, and so we want to be getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. That, I think, should be our ideal goal. Mm -hmm. What's happened instead, and we've seen this both on micro and macro levels, both in the city of Chicago, but also nationally, internationally, 
is this real desire to quote unquote get back to normal. And a lot of the thinking around that is very consumer minded and very privileged minded. And so people who are getting vaccinated think I want to be able to, you know, fly to Europe for a vacation or I want to be able to go to sporting events that other people can't go to. But it's much more important to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And from a public health standpoint, what's really concerning right now, and we're certainly seeing this in the city of Chicago, is that the move towards uh, consumer minded mentality is making things open up too fast. When just a small fraction of the population has been vaccinated, reopening plans are sort of being catered to them, when in fact, the vast majority of people have not been vaccinated here in the United States. And there are billions of people in more than 100 countries who have not even gotten a single dose yet. Mm -hmm. So I think that we really need to be orienting our public health approach locally and internationally around the fact that most people are not vaccinated and we need to get them vaccinated before conferring privilege on those people who are. Yeah, you equate the idea of a vaccine passport to immunoprivilege. Can you make it clear for us, what is immunoprivilege? Immunoprivilege is granting certain rights to people who are immune or living with viruses or not. So I, I reference in my column a great piece in the New York Times by a historian at Stanford uh, about the history of when people would have immunity to a plague of some kind, a pathogen of some kind, they would be given a certain kind of privilege. And that was often not good for them. With cholera, yellow fever, things in the past, the idea that if someone had become immune to it, they could be sent to go do the hardest tasks. But that was also often predicated on letting as many people get sick and letting the lower classes get sick and seeing who became immune and then sending them to go do work on behalf of the ruling class. Another kind of immunoprivilege or viral privilege happened with HIV, where people who were HIV negative could come into the United States for 22 years and people who were HIV positive could not come into the United States. And so that creates all kinds of distortions around the production of knowledge and culture. Conferences about AIDS and HIV either couldn't happen in the United States, or if they did, it would not allow the people who are most affected by it. And so I'm very concerned right now, sort of at the low end of people who have power, that as states decide who gets a vaccine and who doesn't, it's going to make it even harder for them to potentially be able to be mobile. I cite both how in Israel, the occupied territories have not been vaccinated. And in New York State, the prisons are only starting to get vaccinated by court order, even though we've long known that prisons are one of the biggest vectors for how coronavirus moves. So when people get a certain kind of privilege, it distorts what's happening politically and it needlessly and unfairly gives privilege to the people who are not living with pathogens. Mm -hmm. And one way that I've, I've sort of at the, the higher end of income ability that I've been thinking about from work colleagues have written is that as conferences are happening or maybe not happening amongst public health people, if they're planning to have them in person, the people from high-earning countries who are getting vaccines might be allowed to go if they're vaccine passports. But the experts from the countries where they're not getting them are not going to be allowed to go to those conferences. And that would be a real travesty because we really need their expertise, 
their opinions and their insights to be part of this. We can't be leaving out the countries that that don't have the vaccine yet out for what this pandemic should look like when they're going to be the ones dealing with it for the longest. And so that's a really dangerous form of immunoprivilege. Let's talk more about the places that are already doing this, right? You mentioned Israel. Uh, Vaccine passports there are already taking shape. Uh, They're issuing a green pass in Israel that allows people who are fully vaccinated to go to bars and restaurants and concerts, et cetera. Also in Britain and uh, the European Union, they are pushing for similar plans to, to let businesses reopen safely and to unlock travel. What do you see as some flaws in the initial plans for vaccine passports in those other countries? Well, one is that, um, as I understand them, and I don't know the particulars of each country's one, but certainly from their outward-looking communications, it's really about the consumer. And so I don't know from those, you know, are these also applying to the workers? You know, here in the United States, lots of places are opening up with the mindset that customers can come in, but often, you know, customers are coming in, maybe they're dining outside and they're relatively safe, but the line cooks are not necessarily vaccinated and they're disparately likely to maybe be undocumented or to be living in situations which make them more susceptible to viral transmission. So as other countries do this, I think they, they one, need to look at the difference between consumers and workers. But also, it's really important to understand that vaccination is a collective project anywhere it happens, right? You need to get to herd immunity by having your entire population vaccinated. And so it's really dangerous to say that people who are living in the occupied territories are not in the Middle East or, you know, here in the United States, you know, if people are living in prison or out of prison, all those people have to be vaccinated for what vaccination should do. And this idea that we're going to kind of give a pass to certain people who have been vaccinated dulls the importance and the urgency that this is a mass project and we really need to be exercising universal precautions until our political will gets us to a point where we get to whatever the magic number is. We don't know yet, 60, 70, 80, 85% of the population before the virus really, really starts to be suppressed in a population rapidly. Let's bring it closer to home. We talked about New York. Uh, They've rolled out the nation's first vaccine passport, the so-called Excelsior Pass. Here, our governor, uh, J.B. Pritzker, he says vaccine passports could be useful, but They shouldn't be mandatory. What are your thoughts on how things are developing here? The thing that has just frightened me and concerned me the most in Chicago is there's a a Twitter, she that spot that I look at every day and they map who's getting vaccinated and who's dying and getting sick. And they never match. The north side is getting overwhelmingly much more vaccinated and the south and west sides are getting uh, much more slammed with sickness and death. And yeah, the reopening plans are being geared towards uh, the people who are getting vaccinated, partially because they're getting vaccinated. They're also disproportionately wealthier and whiter. So that really concerns me. I do think a really important thing that I would encourage governors, uh, certainly Governor Pritzker and Mayor Lightfoot and anyone else dealing with these matters is to be mindful of the language. So they don't have to be called passports. Passports evoke all kinds of ideas and legal architecture and concepts around militarization that are not helpful. I'm not opposed to vaccine records and certainly for areas where people are going to be living and congregating, you know, dorms, nursing homes, things like that. Of course, it's good to have vaccination records and sometimes even requirements. But the best way to get buy-in to 
something that is a collective project is not sort of privileging and punishing. It's meeting people where they are and using universal precautions until we get to where we need to be. And I would much rather see baseball stadiums and large-scale venues just not open until we get to a safe enough place. I certainly, and I've not seen this locally, and I, I could be wrong, but I have not been made aware of it yet. But so much of the messaging is about what's being done for people coming into Wrigley Field or into you know another venue. And we hear much less about are the workers, not only are the workers getting vaccines, but are they being supported? And beyond the purview of just that venue, you know, a lot of workers who might be line cooks in Wrigley Field, they might live in very dense households. They might live with people who are not documented. They might, you know, live with people who are not connected to an institution. Right. And so societally, we really have to look at the entirety of what it would take to get those people who might be living on the South side, not getting the vaccines or the West side and making sure that they're getting it before we say, no, we're going to open up the park. And even though it's going to cause some spread, we're not going to worry about it right now. So you have all these concerns about vaccine passports, but you've also said that there is a need though for vaccination records. What's the difference? Well, records and passports are evoking different concepts. So my own medical records, you know, list my blood pressure, my weight, and my viral status for things like HIV that I get tested for regularly. But that's not necessarily something that I would need or use to get into a public venue, right? It's not something that would always be known to the state. And so the idea that one has records and that those records are engaged with, with their healthcare providers and with public health people and community, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But that's evoking a very different sense than something that would grant you access or potentially get you prosecuted. Right now, one of the things I've studied for a long time, mostly in other states, is the criminalization of HIV and how HIV can be prosecuted under various circumstances if people don't disclose or if they transmit to someone else. And there is a bill right now in the legislature to deal with this, which I really hope passes, because the idea that people have public health things and, and they are willing to get tested and take medication, that should be dealt with as gently and intimately as possible with their families, their communities, and their healthcare provider. It should not be something that scares them to think that if I take this test, I'm not going to be allowed to go to work or I'm not going to be able to earn a living. And so I see it as just the concentration of, of calling it a passport and making it sound like you can or cannot cross a border, yeah. building on an already really unfair national world order that deals with power in this way anyway, it's likely to frighten people away when we need to be bringing them in. That's Stephen Thrasher with Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism and columnist for Scientific American. Stephen, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's today's Reset. For more great conversations around the topics that matter to you most, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and take 30 seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.